I couldn't hear because there was so much shooting outside. There was so much noise. I couldn't hear what London were asking. I said, hold on, Mum, I've got to close the window. And I heard afterwards that the entire studio said, no, leave the window open, leave the window open, because they wanted to hear the shooting. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In this episode, we talk again to Mark Brain, who worked as a Reuters and BBC journalist during the Cold War. This time we are in Romania in December 1989, where riots, street violence and murder in several cities over the course of roughly a week led to the Romanian leader Nicolae Ceausescu to flee the capital on the 22nd of December with his wife. We hear the challenges of being a journalist in what was effectively a war zone without the risk assessments and protective gear of the present day. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave written reviews in Apple Podcasts or share us on social media. By telling your friends, you can really help the podcast grow. If you can spare it, I'm asking listeners to contribute three US dollars per month to help keep us on the air. Larger amounts are welcome too. Plus, you get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a monthly financial supporter and you bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Back to today's episode. This is part three of three episodes with Mark, and it's been an honour for Mark to share his stories with us in such an honest and revealing fashion. We welcome Mark Brain back to our Cold War conversation. Tell me about Romania in 1989. I thought you were going to say, tell me about Romania in 90 seconds without <laughs> deviation, repetition, <laughs> or pausing. Right, Romania in 90 seconds in, 19, in 1989. Having missed all of the big stories, doing my bit covering the diplomatic dimension, and that had to be done from London, um, but I was very aware that this was my patch. This was a patch I'd been covering for years, and this was the biggest story on the planet, and I wasn't there. So Thursday the 21st, you know, we, we, we'd been getting reports from Timisoara. They were shooting. Clearly, things were not good, or were, were good, were interesting in Romania. The last domino to fall after the Czech Republic had gone and Todor Zhivkov had gone in B- Bulgaria. So apart from Albania, uh, Ceausescu was the last old guard holdout. And he, despite what was happening in Timisoara, and the shootings there um, had thought he was still in control. He had this hubris. He and Yelena Ceausescu genuinely believed that the people loved them. That this was a passing problem. He went on a state visit to Iran, uh, totally convinced that he would be fine. There wouldn't be a coup against him in his absence, which is true. There wasn't. But while he was away, the revolution, the the resistance began to brew pretty intensely. And he came back. So it was but based in Timisoara, and it was sort of under control. The army was still on top of it. The Securitate was still loyal to Ceausescu. And he came back from um, from Iran triumphant and full of his 
misplaced pride and confidence and called this big rally on Revolution Square um, on Thursday, December the 21st, I think it was. And I'm reporting, I'm, I'm following this um, on the morning of that Thursday and uh, preparing and thinking, if this one blows, this is a story I need to cover. I got to be there, uh, even though Christmas was coming up. So I got a call from Mick Atkin, uh, f- an old Leeds University colleague of mine, fellow student. We both studied Russian together at Leeds in the 68 to 73. And Mick was by then working with BBC Monitoring. And he gave me a call as diplomatic correspondent and said, Mark, I think you need to know, I've we've just been listening to the broadcast from Revolution Square. And we're, we're pretty certain that we're hearing chanting and they've just cut the broadcast and they've gone to mar- gone to music. Really weird what's happening. I think you need to know. And I thought, hello, this is it. So I put a report straight away on the BBC and said, you know, you know what Mick had reported. And we had a, we had, we had a, a clip of the sound and, and actually you could hear in the background, Jos Cosmo you know, down with communism, down with Ceausescu. Of course, history now, we know what happened and the crowd turned against him and he went inside and flew off on the helicopter and all of that on that day. Well, I now was in hyperactive mode. So on that Thursday afternoon, I said to my BBC bosses, guys, I got to be there. We didn't have anybody in Bucharest and I knew Romania. You know, I'd been the, been the correspondent mm-hmm. covering Romania in the early 80s. So I had a pretty good claim to go. Uh, John Simpson for BBC television was making similar arguments to the television lot. But in those days, radio and television didn't even talk to each other, let alone cooperate. So I said to my bosses, to um, Peter Brooks, who was the entire foreign desk, one man at Bush House. Um, actually, no, Ian Richardson was with, with him as well. So it was a tiny operation. And I hope Ian Richardson listens to this. You ought to talk to him because he, he was with us in in Beijing in, the, in that summer it was a very important part of our operation there. Uh, anyway, so I got permission from the Beeb to, uh, to go. So I summoned up, I got a suitcase um, and put just a huge pile of tapes, blank tapes, equipment, a mutter box, which was uh, an Ian Richardson invention, which you used with crocodile clips to connect onto a telephone to enhance the volume of the report down the telephone line because you didn't have broadband oh, okay. or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. So Mutterbox, I had a Mutterbox mixer, which was state-of-the-art, really amazing. Um, and $10,000 in cash, which I took from, which I managed to get from, I don't know where I got it from. Somebody managed to conjure up $10,000 in cash. So off I went and stayed that Thursday night at um, a hotel on the outskirts of Heath Row, ready to take the very first flight out the following day to Vienna, uh, well, via Vienna to Belgrade, I was thinking that probably the best way in, because Romania is very big to get in from through Hungary, from Vienna is going to be difficult because they closed the borders and so on. Because mm. we were hearing, you know, they were shooting and the army was cracking down. It was really, really getting very, very bloody in, in Bucharest. The army had not yet turned to switch sides. So I flew to Vienna and then tried to rent, hire a plane, a small plane in Vienna um, to charter a plane to get into Romania, but I couldn't find one. I was on my own, just, you know, with no preparation for a hostile environment. You know, it was a war zone, basically. I hadn't, yeah. I just had with a great big suitcase full of 
kit <laughs> and kit and dollars. So I flew on to Belgrade and at Belgrade airport, I came out of the terminal and uh, the taxi rank. And I said, who can take me? Anybody take ready to take me to Bucharest over the iron gates, over the, over the Danube. Can't remember his name, but anyone, one of these guys said, yeah, I'll take you. So put the suitcase with all my kit in the back of the car. And he drove home just to say to his wife, I'm off to Romania. And she said, you must be nuts. But there were reports at the time that they poisoned the wells, poisoned the water supply in Bucharest. It was pretty scary. Yeah. But I wasn't terribly scared, funnily enough. So we drove off from Belgrade and uh, he had the he had the meter ticking. So it was a metered uh, a taxi ride. And we drove through over to the Iron Gates to where the crossing into Romania was over the dam on the Danube. And the Romanian guards wouldn't let me in. So I sat around thinking, what do I do now? Reported to, uh, I sat around thinking, hmm, what shall I do? Uh, and put in a report to the World Service down the telephone line saying what, you know, what I, what I was observing. And then with the driver, I thought, sod this, we'll go. We just went across and we blagged our way through. And this was about one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning. And then we just drove through the night through completely deserted, what well, was nighttime, um, uh, into Bucharest. Arrived in Bucharest just as dawn, as the sun was coming, this blood red dawn on December, Saturday, December the 23rd, I think it was. So, so I'd Friday, Friday I got to Belgrade, then drove in overnight Friday night into, into, Bucharest. Um, and we tried to get across the main square outside the Intercontinental Hotel where all the foreigners were, would always be put up. But there was shooting and it was there were roadblocks. The army had switched sides in the meantime. So now it was a kind of civil war and the army were, shoot, were, were fighting the Securitate. So I skirted round. I got the driver to skirt round Revolution Square, uh, not Revolution Square, round in front of the um, uh, intercontinental just to try to find a hotel because this was about london time this was about eight o'clock uh in the morning so the today program was still on air and i thought i've got to get onto the today program yeah that was the top priority so we drove around the edge of town um and there was a lot of military around and you could hear a lot you could hear a lot of shooting and i managed to find a hotel called the modern the hotel modern about five minutes, no, 10 minutes walk from, no, maybe 15 minutes walk from the Intercontinental. And I pulled up outside and I said to the driver, wait a minute, went in and I said to Veronica Muntiano, uh, who was the hotel manager on the desk, I said, um, didn't know her name at that point, needless to say, I said, I'm from the BBC, I've just arrived, I've got to get a telephone line to London. Can you get me a telephone line to London? She said, yes, we'll try. So I went up to a room and I got a hand-knitted telephone line to London. Uh, sent the driver off and with uh, uh, $1,870 in his pocket, which is the most expensive taxi fare I've ever paid. And this is 1989. That's a lot. Did of you money. get a receipt? I got a receipt. Oh, I, can, good. I can send you, I can send you a copy. I've got a cop. I've got scanned receipt. I did. You had to have receipt. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> anyway, so I got a line into London, um, which I then kept open for the next week. I didn't let go of that line because the, it was really hard to get telephone lines out of Bucharest. I kept that single line open for one week uh, as the story unfolded. So I reported live into the Today program. And I remember, well, I couldn't hear because there was so much shooting outside. There was so much noise. I couldn't hear what London were asking. I said, hold on, mum, I've got to close the window. 
And I heard afterwards that the entire studio said, no, leave the window open, leave the window open, because they wanted to hear the shooting. <laughs> they wanted the uh, sound effects. They wanted what sound effects. They were the real thing. Maybe. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> they wanted I know. So did you beat uh, John Simpson to uh, oh, dear. punch you know, or not? I have never in my life met John Simpson. I didn't meet him there. We were there for two weeks overlapping. He was in the Intercontinental Hotel right, doing the TV operation. Yeah. Very, very bravely. So we were actually going down at a Revolution Square and reporting the same story, but we never we never teamed up at all. I mean, it was bonkers. I mean, how the BBC worked in those days, and it's a jolly good thing that it doesn't work like that anymore. Um, so I was reporting for radio from the modern, from the modern, which was not very modern. Oh, and Veronica, the, sound, the acoustics were terrible in the room. So I said to Veronica, you know, I need some sound padding. So she was just wonderful. She, we got some, we got some um, mattresses from all the rooms, put them up against the wall and nailed them to the wall with six-inch nails. And I've got a photograph of that. You've actually got the sound proofing in this room with these mattresses nailed to the wall. Wow. But John was reporting from the Intercontinental. Everybody else was in the Intercontinental, and I was, on a, I was completely on my own with this line. I didn't dare leave the modern because I had this line into London. So I would go out. Uh, for two hours, go and walk around the square and find out what was going on, talk to people, get sound effects, you know, get a sense of what was going on, go down to the central party headquarters, the old former central committee building. Um, the army were still shooting at snipers. It was, you know, pretty bloody. The library had gone up in flames. Um, I had a bullet go right past my ear as well. Um, you can hear that on one of my reports. Very irresponsible, to be honest. You know, flak jackets or anything, forget it. We had no gear whatsoever. And I'd go back then to the hotel, beetle back to the hotel at speed. And uh, with 10 minutes flat to the top of the hour, we'd put together a 90-second report written in 10 minutes. I've never written so fluently in my life. And then go live into the top of the hour, sort of every every two hours into Radio Newsreel or the 6 o'clock news or wherever. And you weren't afraid of being shot? Uh, Ian. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh if anybody listening to this is curious about how somebody can have such a crazy experience and not be afraid, uh, I, <laughs> a bit of personal revelation, I've actually just had a formal diagnosis of Asperger's, which explains my difficulty with marriages through the years, which I finally got the hang of. Funnily enough, makes me quite a good psychotherapist now. But looking back, I can see that was why I was fearless. I mean, it bounced off the sides. Crazy. The most frightening moment I ever had was in Kosovo in the beginning of 1990 because I'd just finished covering the end of 
the last conference in Belgrade of the Yugoslav Communist Party, the League of Communists of Yugoslavia, interviewed Milosevic at uh, half past two in the morning. And I really felt in the presence of evil. I didn't put that on my list. Literally, I feel, felt in the presence of evil. And I went why, down. Why, after, why, why did you feel that it, with Milosevic? Icy cold. It was, it was like shaking hands with the ice, the ice queen. The most extraordinary experience. And the party broke up in the morning when the Croats and the Slovenes walked out. And that was the end of Yugoslavia, the end of the LCY and then the end of Yugoslavia. Mm. And I went on down to Kosovo uh, because there was violence in Kosovo. So the Albanians, the ethnic Albanians, were beginning to kick back against the Serbs. Um, and there hadn't yet been a death. But I went down to Kosovo and did some reporting from the Grand Hotel in Pristina. And um, we went out to a, one, of the, one of the towns and the police were – the Serbian police were tear gassing demonstrators. And in the, in the taxi, we got caught between the line, the police lines and the demonstrators. It was relatively benign in a sense. It was only mm. tear gas. And we, the police used us driving between the two in the taxi as cover to fire tear gas over our heads at the <laughs> demonstrators. And that was the most frightened I've ever been. Probably ever, actually. Yeah. And I literally cowered in the, in the well of the back of, uh, of the back of the car. I bounced back pretty damn quick. But in Romania, I wasn't frightened. No, I wasn't frightened. I took stupid risks, um, but didn't get quite as close to the action as John did. John Simpson's reports, when I look at them on YouTube, he was closer to the action than I was. And mm -hmm. he was, you know, credit where credit is due, bloody good reporting. And I think his reporting from Romania was better than mine. I'll have to uh, find, those, um, find, find those clips. There are some on my, uh, some of mine on my website on psychotherapists. If you want to feed them in, yeah. Thank you. Um, what was the BBC's guidance for you there? Was it like don't do anything stupid, or what? You know, what what was the guidance, and what was the, you know, if you had got killed, were they paying for life insurance, or what? What was the deal being a journalist in a situation <laughs> like that? There wasn't one. Go and report. You know, it was, it was, and that's in, it. Uh, the naivety of it is one of the reasons that through the 90s I became very involved with um, hostile environment training and getting people kitted up, kitted out, and coordinated in a much better way to cover uh, bad stories like that in ways that wouldn't get them killed. Uh, the BBC changed its culture completely with the death of John Schofield in Croatia in, uh, during Operation Storm. In June, was it? May, June, summer of 1995. And Chris Kramer, who was then head of news gathering at the BBC, uh, when John got killed by a, by a, um, a Serb, what it, Croatian sniper? I can't remember which sniper it was. Maybe mm. it was a Serbian sniper. Uh, he was in a place, actually, he shouldn't have been, but the you know he was doing a job of work that he thought was a good one. He had all the gear, had helmets and flak jackets and so on. But there wasn't a proper coordination of BBC news gathering. And so the BBC was shocked into action in 1995 and completely changed its culture to train everybody up for hostile environments, including ultimately the psychological impact of reporting from hostile environments, which is an area that I then went on to specialize in. But when I did it, uh, P Peter Brooks and Ian Richardson said, off you go, study boy. You know, they were wonderfully supportive. And I went in naked, basically, and survived it. Being in a situation like that, you must have seen some sights there that you'd never seen before as well. Well, I remember going to the um, the mortuary in Bucharest with about, I, I lost count of the bodies, 
uh, uh, at least 60 bodies uh, and young people uh, just piled up in it just piled up um, because they had so many come in from the from the protests and the shootings on the main drag down the middle of um, uh, what's it called Magurianu, I think um, the main drag through the middle of Bucharest and they piled the bodies up in the mortuary in the in the cool house and they hadn't hadn't had any time to 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 treat them with any dignity i mean they were laid out but these young people uh it was it was quite a sight it was quite a sight that must be something that really stays with you being being through something like that and seeing things like that yes and 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 no the maybe because of maybe because i'm asperger's uh, I was able to experience it and report it fairly, very objectively, in fact. I think what did happen to me, what stayed with me, was that I was very inspired, very worked up emotionally about the meaning of the story I was covering. And I'd had that on Tiananmen Square as well, and that my journalistic judgment took a really nasty shock, nasty jolt. I did a lot of good reporting, but there were one or two reports where I sort of lost the plot, to be honest, lack of sleep particularly from Beijing, I thought that the army were going to be siding with the students and the demonstrators, the 38th army that was mm. coming into Beijing. Uh, in the aftermath, we discovered that, yes, the commander of the 38th army was on the side of Zhao Ziyang, not the side of uh, Li Peng, the very hardline prime minister at the time. Um, so, But I got swept up in the enthusiasm of the moment. And I certainly know that that happened on Tiananmen Square and that happened in Bucharest. And that was part, if you like, of what the, the emotional intensity of what I covered was with me when I left Bucharest and on by train because the airport hadn't yet opened up. Um, and the only way to get out of Romania at the beginning of 1990, January the 6th, no overnight train, January the 5th to the 6th, I went to Bud- Budapest. And... Um, it had been such an intense emotional experience, not much so much seeing the bodies, but the joy, the sheer unadulterated relief of that the nightmare was over. The Romanian people have sort of woken up from this terrible nightmare. And people who say it wasn't a revolution, it was a revolution. There's no question. Yes, was it hijacked by um, Iliescu and the old guard? Yes, it was. Of course it was. That's what happens to these things. But was it a genuine revolution? 100%. I have absolutely no doubt at all that it was a uh, a very powerful movement coming up from below. So it was it was very affecting. And I'm not a cynic. You know, a lot of journalists see things always cynically. And I'm afraid I used to get very enthusiastic about the covered, the stories I covered. I used to identify enormously with the people you know, within those stories. So I was emotionally very raw, very naked when I left Bucharest. And um uh, I saw a young Hungarian girl, 17 years younger than me, on the other end of the train corridor, um, and sort of the rest is history <laughs> in the sense that um, all sorts of things flowed from that moment, which included turning into psychotherapy, trying to rescue my marriage, eventually my wife realizing that the old story wasn't over, and so she divorced me in 2000. I then remarried somebody else. Um, the Hungarian girl and I kept trying to meet each other. And when she, I was available, she wasn't. When she was available, I wasn't. Um, one thing led to another. I then became quite a good trauma therapist, left the BBC, set up the DART Centre for Journalism and Trauma, 
which is all still doing really good work in Europe, that is, and did the European operation for DART, the DART Center, funded by the DART Container Corporation charity in the States. Um, and we really made a difference in journalism. And I left them in 2008, cycled back out to Budapest, as one does, to see this girl, to try and work things out, came back, tried to make rescue me marriage, fa finally failed, and remarried my first wife in 2013 and went out living happily ever after. So there's a Cold War story that has a happy ending. That's an incredible Cold War story. <laughs> so appreciate you sharing that with, with me and and the listeners but there's a few more bits i just want to <laughs> dig into yeah um there's uh vasil bilak oh good grief yes we haven't done vasil bilak there's a little hook on the l because he's slovak so bilak it's a soft l like a russian ya yeah. right okay okay vasil bilak so, right yeah. nasty old hardliner so the story about Vasil Biliak is in 1982, I think it was, around the time of Abel Archer, the famous NATO exercises in uh, West Germany, which the Russians misinterpreted as preparation for a nuclear attack, um, where the Russians, where the Americans were bringing Pershing, Pershing and cruise missiles to Europe, and the, the Russians were threatening and then deploying, threatening to deploy and, and deploying SS-20s much closer to Western Europe to shorten the time. So it was really the absolute height of the Cold War. Yeah. Hair that was triggered. 83. 83, Archer, Abel Archer. So yeah. it must have been, right, yeah. 83. So that was when I um, I had a, I had a, uh, it must have been working with the STB, but a, 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 a Brit who'd stayed in Czechoslovakia after 49, 48, 49. And he was a lovely man um, who was a sort of journalist on the fringes of, and I, he certainly had good connections into the security apparatus. And he would he was my fixer in Prague, and he would set up my interviews for me. And he was very good. I, I was very fond of him. I can't remember his name. Carl, maybe. Maybe a listener will remember the name because a lot of Western journalists worked with him. And I'd asked for a high-level interview uh, at the time of all this tension, you know, because they were threatening the Russians and the Soviets were talking about deploying SS-20s in, in Czechoslovakia, much closer to the German border and the West and NATO's borders. So I got an interview through this chat with Vasil Biliak, who was the hardliner on the Czechoslovak Politburo, who had been leading figure in inviting the Russians in, in 1968. So he was that small group who have now understood as traitors, who invited the Russians. He was put on trial later, I think, for, tre for treachery after the fall of communism. But anyway, I got an interview with him in, in, in one of the Central Committee buildings in, in Prague. And the deal was that I had to give him written questions, and he would write his answers, and I would read the questions, and he would read his answers. And otherwise, he wouldn't do it. It was an absolute – there was no, no follow-up. It was a scripted interview. I mean, I – why I agreed to it, I don't know. I, should, I was very naive as a journalist at that stage in many ways, but I agreed to that and so got this interview. And we recorded it, duly recorded it, and I didn't ask any recorded follow-up questions, but uh, switched the recorder off and he started chatting. How it happened, I don't know, Ian, but the most extraordinary thing, and I can't remember what else he said, but he sort of saw me as a son or something and he started sort of talking totally off the record but he didn't say it was off the record and why i didn't report this i don't know i mean really it was the best story i never reported i've never ever told this story publicly i don't think i have anyway 
Certainly never did a from her own correspondent on it. I never put it on the news. It wasn't a news story as such. It was a reflection of the curiosity and craziness of Eastern Europe at that time, real people managing an unreal system. Anyway, he was talking about his early years as communist leader, a, a senior communist figure, rather, in Slovakia, because he's from Slovakia with the name Biljak. And he was telling me about his task in the early 50s was to clean up prostitution in Košice, I think it was, in uh, the depths of Slovakia, the far eastern Slovakia up against the Ukrainian border, well, then Soviet border. And he was telling me this story that uh, the, the, he volunteered that the curious thing about people, about women and prostitutes, is they didn't really want to give up their trade. And so he told me this story that he was they were they were they were closing down the brothels and pulling prostitutes in and re-educating them i don't know how many of them were putting on trial it seemed to be relatively benign but he said he described that he'd had this encounter with this madam this brothel owner or brothel manager i imagine in sort of 51 52 at the height of stalinism before stalin died and he said how this ma this madam had said to him mr biliak uh you we are the oldest profession you can do what you like but no one will close will ever close down this trade you have to understand that and he described how she walked behind him and rested her voluminous breasts on his head as she said this by goodness me it's bizarre what, what was he doing telling me that story i mean i could have put that on air i mean yeah what would have what at the height of abel archer the story was, you know, the Czechs are threatening this, and it was quite a big story. It led the world, led the world service for several hours. But if I'd added, oh, and by the way, Vessel Bielak described how this prostitute, this madam, <laughs> plonked her vast breasts on his head and said, "You'll never, you'll never wipe us out." <laughs> there was nowhere to put it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it it was almost as though after he'd done the scripted interview, the mask fell, and he just chatted he, with you. He was just human. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think he was sort of. I, I was I was quite a, I was quite an engaging young man. I was sort of quite good at interviewing because I wasn't sort of heavy and political and attacking old John Humphreys or anything like that. I was quite kind and curious and open, and he, I think he trusted me in that moment. But I don't know whether he planned whether whether he thought I was going to report it, or I think he probably said, you know, don't don't report this one, but you know, let's talk about human nature. So yeah. I came away with an awareness, you know, which I knew from East Germany that these are ordinary people. Crap system, but perfectly ordinary people. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting seeing behind that because the image the only image you see of these people most of the time is the official image. And it's often, you know, really difficult to just see them as people who have kids who don't behave and you know, the same stuff that everybody else has to deal with to some degree. Yeah. But I think, you know, looking back, when you think of the messiness around the demise of East Germany and the confusions over the press conference when Shabovsky says, what's this here? Something about sort of, you know, anybody can travel. Yeah, it's probably in, probably starting now. And then yeah. Egon Krentz and people who sort of try and take it over and you realize that they're just ordinary people struggling, yeah. you know, with, 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 with incredibly complex situations. And so much of history is not conspiracy. It's just cock-up. 
Oh, totally. Totally. The, 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 the stories that came out with the end of the Soviet Union when we realized that this vast, great Soviet military machine threatening the West, they were terrified. They genuinely thought the West was going to attack them and they were monitoring lights going on and on, on and off at NATO headquarters, thinking this is signaling the beginnings of a of, of an attack. You can, you can make it all ideological, but actually it's intensely human. Yeah. And it's also groupthink that people in a closed environment begin to hear their own feedback and persuade themselves that of the truth of whatever it is, whatever crazy idea they've come up with. But but that was the thing with Abel Archer is that Andropov had put this Operation Rian in place, which was to look out for the KGB to look out for signs of military preparations such as lights on in offices late at night and stuff like that and the kgb knowing that's what andropov wanted to hear were were trying to find stuff that matched up to that rather than actually look out for legitimate military preparations well the fascinating thing that uh, i i probably need to write a book about ian if i ever get around to writing a book um or at least include or write about. I don't know if I ever will at this stage in life, but it, the psychology of all of this fascinates me. And I now work with individuals with trauma, the aftermath of trauma, whether it's war trauma or rape or car crashes or just childhood and uh, boarding school and um, parental divorce and you know sexual abuse and the stuff that just being bullied on the playground and mummy not getting it. This is the stuff I work with all the time. And the fascinating thing about uh, human nature is that we assume that our internal reality is a kind of shared reality. So if I, working in the KGB and being Russian, experience the world through Russian eyes and we do mokrie rabote, whatever the word is, you know, wet jobs that the KGB do where we assassinate people we don't like and we assume that every diplomat is an undercover spy and Certainly all the journalists are, because all ours are. So the Russians absolutely projected their understanding of themselves out onto the West. So they assumed that the West must be like us, just like um, the West assumed that the Russians must be thinking like us, building all of these things they're bound to want to use them or whatever. So the misunderstandings that happen when you assume that your internal reality is also the opposite numbers, internal reality. I work with um, couples a lot and introducing them to the idea that life is not the same on the two islands you live on. You have a bridge between you, but life on Venus is not the same as life on Mars. You know, don't assume that your partner is experiencing things just the way you are. And the differences, difficulties you have in individual relationships are all just acted out on an international level. There's no difference. Mm. And it's just people screwing up, trying to get things right, getting them right sometimes, a lot of the time screwing up. You just hope that you don't have an awful lot of people dying in the process. That's a really interesting insight. Oh, I've got to tell you one thing about the 4 plus 2 negotiations. Oh, go on then. All right. One final anecdote. You know, you can split this into multiple broadcasts. I am. Don't worry. I am. (laughs) I don't think anybody's going to sit. Well, they probably will sit through three hours, but I'm not so sure. Well, we haven't quite made it to three hours. Not quite. (laughs) Anyway, um, the Germans called them, of course, the two plus four negotiations, you know, the two Germanys plus the four allied mm-hmm. powers. Well, we called them being the allied powers, me being diplomatic correspondent, we called them the four plus two. Um, so they, the negotiation went around Germany. There was one in East Berlin. There was one in Bonn. Um, I went to most of them. 
And the one in Berlin, in East Berlin, which was, of course, still East Berlin, although the wall was open, uh, Shevard Nadzer was there with his, with a couple of uh, senior generals, I think, were with him. And we had the negotiating teams. It's a bit like what's happening in Brussels at the moment about you know, Brexit and how well that works out. And the negotiating tactics of the Russians at that point were to, they were, they were negotiating with a very, very weak hand. Their whole system had basically fallen apart. They were falling apart. The Soviet Union was beginning to fall apart. You know, they really didn't have very much clout at that point. But they were rattling their sabers as loud as they could to try and force the West into, ideally, German neutrality. They wanted to get the whole of Germany, if it was going to be reunited, they wanted it neutral. And they mm. wanted an overarching, you know, CSCE European peace um, concord that included Russia with a major voice, you know, sort of sort of the end of NATO, but just a pan-European security system. And of course, the West was having none of this and didn't trust the Russians as far as they could throw them. Um, and in Berlin, Shevardnadze, it seemed to be going well. The negotiations seemed to be going well. And then suddenly... Jevad Nadza throws down the gauntlet and says, we insist on, you know, play this, play this Trump card. We insist on neutrality. I can't remember the other details and no membership of NATO for Germany. No. And Hella Pick from the Guardian, bless her, and one or two others took it, you know, took it at face value and thought, oh, my God, it, it's all falling apart. And the Russians are going to pull away and in anger and they won't agree to anything. And I thought, hello, I know the Russians. They're trying to sound much stronger than they really are. And this is Shevardnadze. I really I got the, the intuition was dead right at that, po that point. Shevardnadze was acting tough so that he could say to the generals, see, I tried. You know, you wanted the neutral Germany. I did my best. I promise I did my best. You see, it didn't work. And we had to agree to reunification on the West's terms. Basically, you know, the whole of Germany joins NATO. Mm. Um, which is exactly what happened. But but the negotiating tactic was to make a huge amount of noise, hoping to you know, not so much to persuade the Western negotiators to make concessions, but to convince those behind you, the hardliners in Moscow, that you really are busting a gut on their behalf. You did everything you could. So you can go back to Moscow and say, okay, we've 400,000 men are going to have to come back. Uh, we haven't got anywhere to put them. Never mind. We've lost Poland, we've lost Bulgaria, we've lost Czechoslovakia, we've now lost the German Democratic Republic. But actually, it's all okay because we got a good deal. And of yeah. course, people held it against Shevardnadze and Gorbachev, as we know from uh, August 1991. But in that summer of 1990, covering the four plus two uh, was an inspiring experience. And I, I think Shevardnadze and Gorbachev are two of the greatest men of the 20th century. Shevardnadze, they brought about the end of a very, very nasty system in lots of ways, almost without bloodshed. Quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. Just imagine if Trump had been in the White House. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Human Factor, Yeah, which is uh, Reagan, Thatcher, Gorbachev, and Gorbachev. Thank Sorry. you, Mark. No, that's fine. <laughs> that's Ceausescu, Gorbachev. Khrushchev. Khrushchev. Yep. There you it's, go. It's an E with two dots over it. Okay. <laughs> um, and this, 
this book is sort of talking about the the fact that it was really just the almost the right people at the right time. Totally. I did a radio um, documentary on that called uh, Mind Games. Uh, it was uh, nominated for a Sony Award in 2000. When did I do that? 2000. When did, 2001 with Simon Elms of BBC Radio 4. And we interviewed, uh, we interviewed Baker, James Baker. Yeah. We interviewed Douglas Hurd, uh, who was foreign secretary at the time. And I wanted to get Gensha. I wanted to get the four foreign ministers, Gensha and Shevardnadze. Gensha said mm. no, unfortunately, as did Shevardnadze. So our representative from that, from Central Europe. So we had Hurd, Baker, and um, Miklos Nemat, the Hungarian prime minister who opened the border to, to Austria, yeah. Yeah, who ordered, gave the orders for that to be snipped through. Yeah. And Nemet was really impressive. So we had those three big interviews, big set piece interviews, looking at the psychology, looking mm. at the moments of movement between the relationships between these th- between the men in the room. Um, and uh, yeah, it was nominated for a Sony Award. We didn't make it, unfortunately, but we also then interviewed Gabri- uh, Gabrielle Rifkind, who's a psychoanalyst from North London, um, who works on conflict resolution in in central in uh, in the Middle East, Palestinian Israeli, and she's extraordinary. And we had her commenting on the dynamic, the psychological dynamic of those those years. We could have gone much deeper. I wasn't ultimately terribly pleased with the documentary but we had a go at doing exactly what that book you described did because that's how it happened it was individuals making it happen yeah well this is uh this book's about to be published i think and they've sent me a review copy and i'm going to interview the author oh, in a week well, this, or so on my on my cyclotherapist.com website i've got the program the full uh mind games program which you can listen to Right. Okay. I'll. Uh, yeah. This sounds like there's a lot more on your site than I thought there was. <laughs> Look under old BBC radio programs or something. There's a whole load of recordings. Loads and loads of recordings. I just. I just put. I just put my archive up. <laughs> okay. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. And thank you so much for your your very kind and and open interviewing. It's been a total delight to talk to you. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters, help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.